see everybody today. That middle section did fill in quite nicely. I didn't think it was going to at first, but it's good to see everybody here. Obviously, got a lot of people traveling. We want to pray for their safety and hopefully see them back next time. I'm excited to continue my study in the book of Hebrews this morning, and as we continue into chapter 9, just a quick recap for those of you that are visiting or maybe you haven't been here, uh, need a refresher. We want to remind you about some of the things that we've been talking about with the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians in the first century who were undergoing intense persecution by the Roman Empire. They were also facing the, ultimately the, the destruction of Jerusalem coming up quick and things that they held near and dear were about to be gone. And the writer of Hebrews is writing this letter to these people to remind them about their faith in Jesus Christ, not that they would not go back and cling to the law of Moses as Jewish Christians were wont to do in that time period, but rather that they would put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ and the superiority of Jesus that we've talked about. This chart has kind of been a guideline for our progress through Hebrews, how Christ is superior to all these things, how he's superior to the angels. He's worthy of more glory than Moses. There's a superior rest for the people of God. There's a great high priest that the writer talks about who is Jesus Christ that he talks about beginning in chapter 4 and really goes all the way through chapter 10, talking about the priesthood of Christ. We have this warning right in the middle of the book that talks about apostasy and how they become dull of hearing and they haven't grown and learned and been able to teach other people. And he warns them against that and he tells them that they can have full assurance of hope in Jesus Christ. He talks about the, the priesthood of Christ again in Melchizedek in chapter 7, a more excellent ministry, a better covenant. And so as we think about these last few chapters that we've talked about, chapter 7 dealing with the nature of Christ's priesthood, uh, and how that relates to Melchizedek and his priesthood. Chapter 8, we talked about the more excellent ministry of that priesthood and how that requires a new covenant. And we talked about that. Today we're going to talk about the true sanctuary or the tabernacle or place of worship of Christ's priesthood. And in chapter 10, he deals with the perfect sacrifice of Christ's priesthood. And of course, there's overlap in all of these. We're going to talk about the sacrifice of Christ today and so on and so forth. So just as a roadmap for, for this morning, uh, not that I think you're going to get lost or anything, but uh, just to kind of let you know where we're going, we're going to talk about that old covenant tabernacle a little bit and get into some of those details. And some of those things may seem boring to some people. Um, I find them to be interesting. There's a lot of detail that we're not going to cover. Um, we could spend a lot of time in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers uh, go into all kinds of detail. We're not going to do that today, but we're going to talk about and address some of the things the writer of Hebrews thought it was important that we know. We're going to talk about the Day of Atonement, which was the one time a year when the high priest would go into the, the most holy place of the tabernacle and offer atonement for the sins of the people. And we're also going to talk about the true offering in the true tabernacle, that is, of course, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Before we get into all that, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. And I think some important inferences that we can draw from this verse alone here that we really need to think about. Remember, he's comparing and contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant. And he's saying, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. And I think a lot of times when you talk about the, the separation of covenants, a lot of people will think, well... The new covenant means we have a lot more freedom. And all those regulations and, and rules they had to follow, they don't apply to us, which is true to a degree, 
But I think people take that a step further and think there really are no regulations and rules to worship. And of course, that is not true at all as we read the New Testament. There are still regulations and rules that we follow in our assemblies and our worship and what God wants us to do. And of course, the place of holiness, we don't have a tabernacle that we go to. We go to this building, but it's just a building. But of course, the true place of holiness where God is, where Jesus Christ reigns at his right hand, that is the true place of holiness. And if anything, I feel like a lot of times we think, well, we just don't need to regard the holiness of God as much as they did under the Old Testament. And that is not true at all. In fact, we ought to have a greater understanding and more um, a fuller, I suppose, idea of God's holiness and what that really means to us. And I hope that you'll keep those things in mind as we go through. Also, I want to recall what we read in Hebrews chapter 8 about how those priests served a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And here we have the command in Exodus 25 where God told him, Do that exactly as I show you concerning the pattern. Do that, all its furniture, everything, make it everything exactly right. And there was a reason for that. And the reason was those things were copies and shadows of true heavenly things. And if Moses and the children of Israel had deviated from the way that they did those things, it would no longer represent true things. And so it's important for us to understand that. And as we go, when we talk about some of these shadows and copies, There's some things we have to understand about that. Number one, there are times when Scripture, I think, is pretty plain and clear about what those connections are. We can look at it and we say, okay, this clearly represents this or that. There are times when Scripture calls that out. There are other times when I think that there's a very clear inference or maybe, I don't like to use the word speculation, but I guess it's not baseless speculation. We can say, I think this probably represents that. And, of course, I think it's also possible to take it too far and to, to... draw meanings out of something that don't exist. However, I think that everything that God commanded in the Old Testament, every regulation, every rule that he laid out had a purpose and a plan, even if we can't ultimately determine what that was. Even if we can't one for one say, this means this, this means that, we can know for sure that God had a reason for doing it. And it's important for us to consider that as we talk about those things. If you zoom out, for instance, and talk about the camp of Israel, which the Hebrew writer doesn't address, but I think it's important to talk about this morning as we delve into this a little bit. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to the people of Israel, shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. That's Numbers 2, verses 1 and 2. And the whole chapter, number 2, basically talks about how the camp of Israel was to be organized as they were in the wilderness. And as you look at that and and picture it in your head, I'm not sure what you see. I've read that before, and it's a long description. It's very detailed about the different tribes of Israel and the direction they were to camp in and where they're supposed to face the center of the camp. And an artist's rendering of that looks something like this, as you see this. Now, I don't know the first thing that jumps out at you when you see this picture. The first thing that jumped out at me was this. I see a cross. And, you know, people say, well, do we know that God really intended the camp to look like at a cross? I'm like, are there any coincidences with God? Is there any coincidence that God set this up in this way? Now, do I have a scripture that I can point to and say, this camp represents the cross of Christ? I don't have that scripture. And I want to make that plain this morning. But at the same time, I can't imagine that God would have set it up this way, not knowing that we would look at this and think, that looks like a cross. 
And so as we zoom in, we find the, the, the courtyard or the court of the tabernacle that was set up, which was basically a, a fence that was around the tabernacle. Exodus 27 talks about that, and, and we're not going to go into great detail, but how they should make the, the court of the tabernacle, the south side of the court, you'll have hangings of fine twine linen, 100 cubits long for one side. Lots of details there. They all meant something. Maybe we don't know what it is, but it was important for God to set it up that way. And so here we have a sort of an, another artist's rendering. And we've got some, you know, these kinds of pictures today because we don't have the real things. We don't know for sure what they look like, but we can make pretty good guesses. And so we have this outer courtyard. Inside there's this bronze altar where the sacrifices were made. There's this bronze laver or basin where the priests would wash their hands and their feet. We're going to talk about those here in a minute. You've got the tabernacle itself that we'll get into more detail in. But we're going to see there's a progression. And I hope you'll keep this in mind as we go through this, that it's not just talking about details just because we're trying to fill time. But there's a progression that happens with these things, and there's an importance to them that relate to what happens for you and I in the Christian age. And I hope that you can bear with me as we get there. This bronze altar, which was almost like a big barbecue pit, basically, it's where they did the sacrifices, it's where they offered the burnt offerings. And he talks in Exodus 27, verses 1 and 2, you shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad, so on and so forth, overlaid with bronze. And this is where the priests daily would offer sacrifices and where they would do their burnt offerings and things like that, a place of sacrifice. And, of course, we know very easily that sacrifices of the Old Testament, we follow that through to the sacrifice of Jesus, which is the whole point of what we're talking about this morning. There's this bronze basin or laver uh, where the priest would go, and he says that you shall make, this, make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of the meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. So before approaching the tabernacle to perform their priestly duties, that Aaron or the high priest and all the other priests, they would have to wash their hands and their feet at this basin to make themselves ritually clean before they performed any service at the tabernacle. So as we get into our text now in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 2, I just want to read verse 2 for now. It says, For a tent was prepared, and the first section, which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. So here's a, a bigger view of what this might have looked like. And we've got the, the bronze altar, the bronze basin, and then the tent of meeting or the tabernacle that we want to zoom in on and and take a look at. You see within this first room here that's divided by this veil, there's this lampstand on what would be the left side as you enter the tabernacle, this table on the right side that has the bread of the presence, and then, of course, the altar of incense and the ark that we'll get to shortly. So this, this candlestick or lampstand uh, is probably a better, better description of it. Exodus 25, verse 31 the scripture says, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Verse number 37, you shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up as to give light on the space in front of it. I have not included all the descriptions of what this looks like, but it matches what you see in this picture. And we know this is a pretty accurate representation of what it looked like because we have this picture at the bottom which is a picture of part of the Arch of Titus. And Titus was the Roman general, and eventually Caesar, who besieged and destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. And this arch 
basically depicts his return to Rome with the spoils of that war. And here in the, this picture, we see this lampstand that is detailed. They brought the lampstand from the temple back to Rome as the spoils of war, and so we know what it looks like. And so as you consider the lampstand and what it represents, you know, there's lots of ideas, and I think some of them are probably pretty easy to, to draw those connections to. As you read the book of Revelation, when he talks about the churches there, the seven churches, he talks about seven golden candlesticks, which represent those churches. And I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that the New Testament corollary here with this lampstand is the church and how we shine the light of Jesus in this world. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. But also the oil that was within this, that the source of the light, if you will. Exodus 27 talks about how they, they would get pure beaten olive oil for the light. Aaron's and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generation by the people of Israel. That's Exodus 27 still. And so as you think about that, the, the candlestick or the, the lampstand was the mechanism that displayed the light, but the true source of the light wasn't the lampstand. It was the oil that was within it. And Scripture is pretty clear about the relationship between oil and the Holy Spirit and the anointing of oil, the anointing of the Spirit. Uh, you go back to the anointing of King David by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. Verse 13, he said, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. And from that day forward, Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. When you see throughout Scripture people being anointed, there's the anointing of oil, but there's also the anointing of the Spirit. And there's a very strong connection between oil and the Holy Spirit. And I think that we're probably seeing that connection in the tabernacle here with this lampstand being at least partly represented by the Holy Spirit and the work in the lives of God's people. Also, there's this table on the other side of the room with this, with this, with this uh, bread of presence or the showbread that was upon it. I'm not going to read all these details. He talks about the details of how you should make the table, the, the, the length and the height of it, the, overlay it with gold, all the plates and dishes for the incense, flagons and bowls uh, for drink offerings, all the things that go with that. He says there in verse 30 of Exodus 25, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. And we read in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 5 through 9, we, the process of that, the baking of the bread and how they were to bake 12 loaves and do, um, to set them in two piles, okay, on one on either side of the, of the table, frankincense on it. And there's all kinds of speculation about what the frankincense represents and more detail than we have time to go into this morning. But I see the, the bread with, or the table with this bread being representative of God's providing sustenance to his people, and not just physical sustenance, though it probably brings to mind the idea of the manna in the wilderness and things like that. But very clearly, I think we can draw a connection to the communion table and at least a, a small representation there of what that is. But ultimately, what I think of is Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the provider for us. He's our giver. And of course, he's not talking about going physically hungry here. He's not talking about going physically thirsty. Spiritually, you won't hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they should be filled. We know that Jesus is our provider. And so I see in this tabernacle with this bread, this table and this bread, I see a representation of, 
of Christ and his provision for our sustenance. Um, and, of course, for them, it would have been God's represent, represent, representing God providing for them in every way possible. So as we move on in Hebrews chapter 9 to verse 3, he says, Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. So as you get to this section veil, there's this altar of incense, and then behind the veil, there's the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark originally was a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. That's the two tables of stone that the Ten Commandments were written on. Verse 5 says, Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. That's what you think. I heard a man lecturing on this. He got to that verse 5 and said, well, we're going to talk about it in detail. <laughs> we're not going to go into great detail today, but what, you know, why did he say that? Well, some people think, well, he just didn't have time. Like, we don't have time this morning to go into great detail. But if you look at the history of the Ark of the Covenant and how long it was around, it's pretty clear that you don't see the ark again after Israel comes back or after Judah comes back from the Babylonian exile. Um, there are a lot of theories out there that I did a little bit of research into. The, the, the most prevalent theory is that when, when uh, Babylon came in and destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, they took the ark of the covenant as spoils and melted it down. That's the most prominent theory. There are other theories that have played out in maybe movies that you're familiar with about Egyptian pharaohs coming in and, and stealing the ark. Um, I tend to believe it was taken when, when Babylon came in and, and destroyed Jerusalem. Um, there's another account in history which shows after they returned from Babylon and the temple was rebuilt, this Egyptian pharaoh comes in and sacks the city and wants to go in because he thinks there's all kinds of treasure there in the most holy place of the temple and it's just empty. There's nothing in there. And history bears that out. So I think when he says we can't speak of it in detail, I think it's just because it hadn't been seen in hundreds of years. Nobody really knew what it looked like. Regardless, whether it's that or don't have time, either way, we're not going to go into great detail either. So as we look at this, zoom in further again, we're going to be the second section here. Now, as you read this as you read this back in our text here, the way he words this, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense. It kind of sounds like what he's saying was the altar of incense was inside the curtain, but that's simply not the case. As you, as you see, as we'll read more about the altar of incense, it was very clearly before the veil and before you get to the Ark of the Covenant. And from what I've, I'm not a Greek scholar, so I'm taking other people's words on this just so you know, but from what I've read and studied, they basically say it's just an awkward translation from Greek to English on this one. And it's not that the altar of incense was inside the veil, but rather the altar of incense belongs to the most holy place. There's a, there's a, the way the grammar is, is in the Greek is basically indicating a, the altar of incense just belongs to that section. It's sort of like the, the last barrier, if you want to use that word, uh, the sort of the last step in the progression of getting to the most holy place. So as we read about the altar of incense, Exodus chapter 30, again, we're not going to read all these details, uh, but he does say in verse 6 of chapter 30, you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you, and Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. 
every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. So Aaron was to burn incense on this thing every day. So it couldn't have been behind the curtain because he didn't go in there but once a year. And so therefore, it's, again, simply just a matter of an awkward translation there. As knowledgeable as the writer of the book of Hebrews is, I have very little doubt that he knew exactly how the tabernacle was set up. And so we'll call that an answer question there. Exodus chapter 30, verse 10, Aaron shall make atonement on it horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is the most holy to the Lord. Though he burned incense on it every day, Aaron also once a year on the day of atonement went and sprinkled blood on the altar of incense as well before he entered into the veil and sprinkled blood on the mercy seat as well. So what does this altar of incense represent? To me, this is one of the most clear connections that we can make. As we read Psalm chapter 141, verse 2, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Luke chapter 1, we read about Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who was a priest. And the lot fell on him to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Revelation 5 talks about the elders that were before the throne. They had golden bowls full of incense. Which are the prayers of the saints? Revelation 8, another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints. So very clearly to me, this altar of incense is representative of the prayers of God's people rising up before him. And sort of the last... uh, thing in the line, if you will, before you get to the most holy place. So then you get to the Ark of the Covenant. Um, Lots of pictures out there of what people think the Ark of the Covenant looked like. This is pretty standard in terms of what people think it looked like. There's differences in the way the cherubim look on the mercy seat, but for the most part, this is what most people agree it sort of looked like at least. Again, we're not going to read a whole lot of details about it, the construction, But he does say in verse Exodus 25, verse 16, you shall put into the ark of the testimony that I shall give you. So the testimony or the tablets of the covenant, he said, you put that inside there. Uh, Verse Exodus 25, verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. So the ark itself is the box overlaid with gold and the mercy seat is the lid that goes on top of the box. He said, and he tells about how to make that. He says, you shall make two cherubim of gold. Those, Those angel creatures that are on the top facing one another. Uh, We read about those in Isaiah chapter 6, I believe, as Isaiah sees this vision into the throne room of God. And so he tells them, you'll make one cherub on the one end, one on the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubims on its two ends. And then in verse 21 and 22, he says, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you, In verse 22, this is the most important part. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. So God says right here, above the mercy seat, above these two cherubim, that's where I'm going to meet you. That's where I'm going to tell you about the commandments I will give to the children of Israel. That's where God's presence was. In the Ark of the Covenant, in this most holy place of the tabernacle, was the centerpiece of worship for the nation of Israel. That's where God's presence would come down and dwell. We saw that, that picture of the camp at the beginning and that, that, cloud of, that pillar of cloud that was there 
The glory of God coming down and dwelling between the cherubim of the mercy seat. And what we see as we go through this, and I hope to be able to show you this with our next slide, is we see a couple of different kind of progressions here. Number one, we see a progression about what it takes to approach God and to ultimately to approach God the Father. And so we have this court of the tabernacle, and we have this altar of burnt offering where sacrifices were made. And obviously, we clearly link that to the sacrifice of Jesus. Because without the sacrifice of Jesus, there's no price to be paid for sin. And it was that sacrifice that enables us to then come to God and to be cleansed. And we do that through the waters of baptism. We meet the blood of Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism. And that's enabled by the sacrifice of Jesus. And before we can even approach God at all, that has to happen. And before these priests could even approach the tabernacle, there were sacrifices that had to be made. There were washings that had to take place. And those things made them at least bodily cleansed enough that they could approach the tabernacle. And then in the tabernacle, you have the lampstand on the left side, which we talked about represents the Holy Spirit, the light of the gospel going out into the world. You have the table of the showbread or bread of presence, which represents God's sustenance or Jesus Christ, I am the bread of life. And we already start to see this Trinitarian thing, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that's taking place inside the tabernacle. You have the altar of incense, which is, represents prayer. How do we pray to God? Well, we do so in the name of Jesus Christ or by his authority. Only through Jesus Christ can we approach God in prayer. And the scriptures tell us the Holy Spirit plays a part in that. The Holy Spirit helps us with groanings which cannot be uttered, the scripture says. And so the, the Son, the Holy Spirit, help us in our prayers, and only then can we approach God. And of course, the Ark of the Covenant there in the most holy place represents God the Father. So we see these shadows and copies and how they can relate to what goes on in the New Testament church. But there's another level of progression here that I think is really important for us to understand. Several weeks ago, our brother Branson preached and he talked about the characteristics of God. And it was a good lesson. I recommend you listen to it if you, if you weren't here. But he talked about all the different characteristics of God and his nature. God is a loving God and so on and so forth. And I'm not trying to throw shade on his lesson at all, but as you think about the, the defining characteristic of God, if you were just to read the Scriptures and say, what is the characteristic of God? Who is God? What is God? I think you would have to come back with the answer that God is holy. God is holy. And there's this theological term called the trisagion that we read, and it's basically a fancy word of talking about what is said in these two verses we're going to read here. Isaiah 6 and verse 3 is Isaiah's about to receive his commission from God, and he sees into the throne room of God, and he sees these cherubims. This is one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God's not just holy. He's not holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Revelation 4 and 8 is... John sees into the throne room of God. He says he sees these four living creatures, each of them with six wings, or fools of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
Brothers and sisters, God is holy on a level that we can't even come close to comprehending. When Isaiah saw this vision, you know what he said? Oh, that's cool. That's neat. That's not what he said. He said, woe is me, for I am undone. Brother J. Lloyd says, I'm a goner. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. I've seen the holiness of God, and I'm done for. And I think the camp, starting with the camp of Israel and working your way into the tabernacle, it's all about a progression of holiness. The closer you get to God, the holier you got to be. The more wary you have to be. You know, we see Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who approach, try to offer a strange fire on the altar of incense. God burned them up, just consumed them. They didn't have the reverence for the holiness of God that they should have. And for us to look at this layout of the camp and to think, well, that's all interesting, but, you know, we don't really have to follow those rules and regulations anymore, and it doesn't really mean much to us. Not true. In fact, it should give you and I a greater understanding of the holiness of God and the fear and the respect and the reverence we need to have for that and the thanksgiving it should create in us knowing that we have access to that through the blood of Jesus. And so then the writer of Hebrews goes on to talk about the Day of Atonement for a little bit, and I promise we're going to move through the rest of this faster. We're not going to take as much time going through the rest of this, even though I probably could do two or three more sermons on these verses if I wanted to. So the Day of Atonement, this one time a year when the priest would go in and make sacrifices. So these preparations having thus been made, verse 6, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself or for the unintentional sins of the people. So let's stop there for a second. I've got some phrases and words highlighted here I want us to pay close attention to. But so after the preparations of the tabernacle were made, the priests go in there in that first section regularly. They go in there daily. They maintain the oil and the lamps. They put fresh bread on the table once a week on the Sabbath, so on and so forth. He says, but into the second section only, the high priest goes only once a year. So only once per year um, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, I think is what the Jews called it, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong on that. But basically, that was the Day of Atonement. That's the day the priest would make that atoning sacrifice and sprinkle blood on the altar of incense, sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. So, Verse 8, it says, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. What's he saying there? Well, he's saying the priests have to go in there regularly. They have to do this every day, or they have to go in every year and make the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And that signifies the first section is still standing, that the way into the true holy place where God is is not yet opened. Otherwise, why would they have to keep coming back here over and over and over and doing these sacrifices? Remember when Christ died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn right down the middle. And that symbolized Christ entering the holy place once and for all. That's what it symbolized. At that point, the way into the true place, the true holy place was opened, 
And Jesus went there on our behalf. So, back in verse number 9, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. We talked about this last time, how the law of Moses was not intended to take away sin. The law of Moses was intended to point out our sin. It wasn't intended to offer us forgiveness or eternal rest. The law of Moses and all these ritualistic worship that was done under that was simply a matter of what he says here in verse 10. It dealt only with food and drink and various washings, regulation for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. It was only to allow those priests to approach the tabernacle of God and perform their duties. It wasn't intended to take away sin. So notice what we have highlighted here. Regularly into the first section, once a year, the blood of animals, the sins of the people, and the sins of himself cannot perfect the conscience. So I've got a list here that we're going to do a comparison on here in a minute. Number one, under the Old Covenant, you have a tent that's made with hands of this tabernacle. It's a physical building. Yes, it was done exactly the way God said to, but ultimately it was just physical matter. Sticks and bricks, or cloth, or whatever you want to call it. Gold, in some cases, valuable, but still just stuff. A regular repeating sacrifices, daily sacrifices, Weekly stuff going on, monthly, yearly stuff going on, over and over and over. The blood of animals. Now, they were supposed to be the best animals they could find without spot or blemish, but just animals, bulls and goats and calves. The priest had to offer sacrifices for his own sin and for the sins of the people. It was an imperfect offering. The blood was imperfect. The person doing the offering was imperfect. And so the true way was not opened. As long as that veil was in place, the true way was not opened and sins were not forgiven. It could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Now let's talk about the true offering, the true offering of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 9, but there's that crucial conjunction. We're we're signifying the difference here and the contrast. But when Christ appeared as high priest of good things that have come even through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. So there's the difference. Christ entered into the true holy place, not the one made with hands, but where God really is. And he did it once. He doesn't have to do it over and over. He doesn't have to suffer and die over and over. He did it once. And he did it not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Now, listen to verse 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If under the law of Moses... In the Old Testament, if, these, if the blood of bulls and goats and this sprinkling of the ashes, if those things were able to purify the flesh to let people approach the tabernacle to approach God, if that was possible, how much more will the blood of Christ, which was perfect and pure and sinless, which is the only sacrifice that could have done it, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works? And so on one hand, you have this. In the Old Covenant, on the other hand, you have this. 
Instead of a tent made with hands, you have a tent not made with hands. Those heavenly places that we've talked about, that, that Paul talks about so much in the book of Ephesians. Instead of regular repeating sacrifices, you have one sacrifice, once for all. Instead of the blood of bulls and goats, you have the blood of the Son of God. Instead of offering for his own sins and then someone else's Jesus, because he was perfect and pure and sinless, offered his own blood, not for his sins, but for ours. And because of that, it works. The true way is opened into heaven. And sins are forgiven. He uses the words eternal redemption and a purified conscience. Very much a one-for-one thing going on with these two passages. And that is what Jesus Christ does for us. Now, it's ludicrous to look at this list, or these two lists, rather, and to think, I'll take door number one. Nobody's going to do that. But that's exactly what these people were doing. They were going back to what they'd always known. They were going back to what they'd been taught, what they were comfortable with, what they were familiar with. And I think a lot of times you and I, of course, we're not going to say, well, let's go back to the law of Moses, but what are we going to do? We're going to, we're going to neglect to remember just how great this is. We're going to forget about the fact that there was only one person who could do this, and that's Jesus Christ. We're going to forget about how holy God truly is. And we're going to neglect to remember the important things that, drive, that should be driving us in our lives every day. The holiness of God and the access we have to that because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. How the true way is opened. Let's remember that on a daily basis. Let's think about that all the time. You know, the writer says in the next verse that we'll start with next time and continue on through talking about what exactly the sacrifice of Jesus means for us, what it enables and how it helps us and truly how important it is. We've talked about a lot of it today. But in verse 15, he says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. We talked about that progression of holiness, that progression of what's necessary to approach God. Maybe there's someone here today that has not taken the steps necessary to approach God. You know, there was a sacrifice made for you. Not the sacrifice of bulls and goats and calves, all different kinds of animals, but the sacrifice of the perfect, pure Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. That sacrifice enables you by the commandment of the Lord to be buried with him in the waters of baptism where you meet his blood in his death and your sins are washed away. And at that point, you're able through the Son, through the Holy Spirit to approach God and you can worship him with a pure conscience as the writer says here, knowing that your sins are forgiven because they were taken away by the blood of Jesus. And knowing that because of that, you can approach the throne of God boldly through your great high priest, which is Jesus Christ. If you've not taken the steps to do that today, we offer this invitation to meet Jesus Christ's blood in the water of baptism. If you want to do that, if you need the prayers of this congregation for any reason, please come have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.